Hi, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard Radio, the channel where we put podcast versions of all our interviews for those of you who prefer to listen this way. Today, I'm talking to philosopher-cum-mechanic Matthew B. Crawford. I've been a fan of his since his first book, The Case for Working with Your Hands. In light of the coronavirus pandemic, his new ideas in his new book, Why We Drive, all about the danger of safetyism and the importance of individual agency could not be more relevant. At such a divided time, his is one of the few voices that could appeal equally to a Californian surfer dude and a Midwestern religious conservative. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome. You're watching Lockdown TV from Unheard. Throughout this uh, lockdown period, we have been talking to politicians and thinkers and writers and scientists trying to understand the world and understand what sort of place it's going to be when this ends. I'm really excited about the guest we have joining us all the way from San Jose, California today. He is called Matthew B. Crawford, um, and hopefully you will see him appearing on your screens now. Um, so, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just by way of introduction, um, you are a philosopher or a writer. Um, you were formerly a, a motorcycle mechanic. Um, and you've written a couple of books, both of which I enjoyed tremendously, uh, and have a new one out called Why We Drive. Um, so I've been a big fan of yours since the first book, since the case for working with your hands, right through the second one. And I think you've got something really, really important to say, um, which actually explains better than most of the other analyses I've read, kind of economics-based, um, why we're in such a peculiar political moment. Um, and some of the way you talk about life, I think, explains very well how we got to a kind of the, all these populist ructions in the past few years. So really want to get into that. I guess, first of all, to, to situate us in the present, um, this latest book was written entirely before the COVID era. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, everything has sort of changed. How it feels timely, possibly even more timely, thanks to this. How do you, how do you read that? Well, yeah, I mean, with the with the pandemic, obviously, safety, sort of health and safety, are are uppermost um, in people's minds, and of course, also health and safety have become a kind of um, you know political instrument for kind of managing the population. I think there's a lot of um, kind of people discerning that, I mean, it's, it's become so obvious. Um, so, and that gears into uh, one of the major themes of this book, Why We Drive, uh, which is what I call the ideology of safetyism, um, which, you know, it's, I guess to begin with, it's a, it's a moral sensibility. Um, there seems to be a kind of loop wherein the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk appears. And I think that makes us um, in some ways more susceptible or more receptive to um, kind of projects to uh, make us more safe. And, and it's, it's sort of under, in, under the cover of that, there's various kinds of bureaucratic grasping that take place, whether by corporations or the state. I mean, what's interesting is that the, the kind of moral high ground uh, is always with the safetyists or it's, yeah. 
it's very it's always very hard to argue anything other than what will be the most safe option right. at all times. And what you do quite wonderfully in this book is begin to talk about a different kind of moral high ground, which might not necessarily be the most safe option. Yeah, so I, I begin the book with a, a vignette of um, riding a motorcycle through the woods, a, a dirt bike. You know, there are, there are rocks and tree roots and fallen limbs and mud and steep descents and creek crossings, all this stuff just coming at you on the fly. And even if I'm only going, say, 15 miles an hour, it demands total concentration. And and if I push it beyond my sort of current skill level, beyond my comfort level, and it goes well, meaning I don't crash, um, I feel elated. I feel somehow enlarged. Uh, but of course, often it doesn't go well. Uh, I had one year where I had four trips to the emergency room, just breaking a lot of bones. So that raises the question, why? Um, and I think that's that's sort of the nugget that that the book proceeds from is this hunch that risk is somehow bound up with humanizing possibilities. And that seemed something worth investigating right now, especially because of this big push for driverless cars, which I see as one instance of a wider kind of program uh, wherein the demands of competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. And often that's proceeds through automation. So there's something in that kind of moment of you riding that motorcycle, you are at one with this machine, um, you are at one with your surroundings, you're fully concentrated. And that sort of becomes a metaphor for human flourishing, for life as it should be lived as at its best. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's that's fair. At least there are kind of moments of when you expose yourself to risk that makes you uncomfortable. That I, I mean, these are, I mean, it's almost cliche to say so, but this is sort of, these are moments of growth and failure. I mean, that, that I think the two are inseparable. And the determination to eliminate risk from life seems like it's, um, you know, that always proceeds by pointing to the least competent among us to justify the program, um, which is a kind of egalitarian principle, which makes you know perfect sense in many settings. But I think if allowed to kind of colonize everything, every human activity, then there's a kind of infantilization that comes in under the cover of, of democratic principles. And the, my, this book, Why We Drive, is really a meditation on self-government. And my sense is that democracy really remains viable only if we're willing to extend to one another a presumption of individual competence. So what does the kind of the good world look like? I mean, I want to ask you in a minute about what the dystopian world might look like. But what does the kind of Matthew Crawford endorsed best version of democracy look like is it is it a kind of limited government libertarian sort of world where people are pretty much living untouched by government or how would you describe it to begin with i don't i don't really have a program it isn't um it isn't a manifesto um 
the second thing, I guess, would be that uh, I think libertarians often have a misplaced their their suspicions are sometimes misplaced because it, often it's not the government that poses the threat to human freedom. Often it's these sort of quasi-governmental um, commercial entities. I mean, think about the platform firms of Facebook, Google, et cetera, and just what a far-reaching role they have in our lives. The, the issue of social trust is in play. And that's an issue that is, isn't really on the radar of libertarians who tend to take a very individualistic um, understanding. And when I look at an urban intersection, um, especially in a place like Rome, you know, where there's there doesn't seem to be any rules that are actually being followed, but what you see is this kind of improvisation, um, you know, people just working it out on the fly, they're cooperating. And to me, that looks like a marvel of social trust. Um, and it's, I, I think we can, I mean, it's a very, you know, small bore, you know, everyday thing. But I think um, when I see that, I'm, I'm looking for clues that can help um, us sort of guide our hopes for the renewal of social trust more broadly. So the metaphor extends there. So it starts with driving your own vehicle in harmony with your surroundings as a kind of metaphor for agency in the world and a proper lived life. And then it extends that the road or the intersection is then can be quite a kind of beautiful example of a harmonious political setup where everyone yeah. has agency, but people are respectful of each other's boundaries. On a good day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we're all familiar with when it goes badly and uh, actually have a chapter on road rage, which is a fascinating phenomena. I think partly it, it, it proceeds from the, just the very basic fact that it's hard to make ourselves understood uh, what our intentions are from within the car. And it's hard to read other people. You don't know where their attention is directed. You don't know where their gaze is directed. Um, so that can sometimes spiral down into a case of mutually assured misunderstanding. But at the same time, you know, there are these moments of uh, sometimes in London, actually, when I've been there, since you live there, yeah. you, you probably regard everyone regards their own driving culture as the worst, I think. But when I go there, there are times when just the the flow is beautiful, where people don't seem to be following rules so much as just kind of um, trying to make it flow. And that's an interesting thing flow it's an emergent property of a collective that only happens if everyone is is paying attention and brings a disposition of flexibility to it i think i guess what the the thing that i find so exciting about all this way of thinking is that it offers a, a, a substantial counterweight to a kind of entirely economic entirely kind of mechanistic view of how we should conduct politics there where basically the only virtue is, um, you know, better distribution of wealth, um, more pre preservation of life, alleviation of poverty, all in incredibly important things. But there's no sort of other virtue, which is about what a good life looks like or, um, you know, what flourishing might look like. Governments don't talk in those terms. Politicians don't tend to talk in those terms. Yeah, well, for, to begin with, your sense of um, the inadequacy of an economistic account of our common life together, which tends to be sort of begins from a, an assumption of atomized 
uh, individuals and in turn tends to reinforce that it sort of a, becomes a self-fulfilling picture of society. And um, I think one of the uh, themes in Why We Drive that cuts the most against that and offers a, a kind of positive picture of um, a form of human flourishing that's absent in that picture is the, the stuff about play. So I have these um, chapters where I, I go around to different automotive subcultures and sort of grassroots motorsports um, just to check it out. <clears throat> and uh, the spirit of play is what uh, sort of I was hit with. And I'm, I'm very much was in trying to make sense of this was helped by this Dutch historian, Johan Huizinga, who writes about play as the basis of civilization, really. Um, and what he said was that play is, it's a spirit of hostility and friendship combined. So he found it in sport, he found it in uh, ritualized combat, um, in competitive dances, in um, boasting matches and sort of stylized insult trading. So it made me think of the rap battles of like the 90s, you know. So that cuts very much against the spirit of rational control where you're trying to um, control everything because play is about enduring tension and uncertainty and risk. That's the play spirit. Um, and so there's an obvious kind of uh, tension between that and safetyism and rational control. It sounds kind of a little bit masculine, a little bit macho almost. Mm -hmm. um, and in that sense, it sounds kind of retro. These, this is this sort of spirit of kind of slightly dangerous play and, you know, riding the bike in a potentially dangerous way. How do you respond to the idea that it's sort of more of a masculine view of the good life? Um, I would fully assent to that um, characterization of it and be untroubled by it, I think. It's interesting, the, uh, once you, these days, if you point to something as being masculine, it's taken to be uh, an accusation that, uh, that should make one start to panic. <laughs> but that seems unnecessary. And, you know, that, that's, that, that um, there's a whole tradition of vitalism um, so in the U.S., we think of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, William James, the psychologist. He wrote this famous essay called um, A Moral Equivalent of War. So he was looking for something that would call on the same parts of the soul as war, um, but not be so bloody. And, and that's because he regarded hardness and toughness as indispensable to the human spirit. There's a nice automotive um, expression of that. And did you ever see the movie Wally? -E? Yeah. Do you remember the scene where there's these grotesquely fat people sort of being ferried about in these pod-like car things, yeah. uh, sort of self-driving pods, and they're gazing raptly at their screens, you know, with some sort of piped-in entertainment and slurping from their enormous cup holders. And so their faces beam with this sort of slackened opiate pleasure. Um, so these are people who are completely safe and content, but somehow less than fully human. Which looks a little bit like a potential future we might be going into if 
if we're all going to be driven around in driverless cars, staring at our Google screens, um, is that sort of, I asked earlier what the dystopian possible future is. That's it, is it? Well, it's interesting. Self-driving cars have played pretty prominent roles in quite a few dystopian movies. I mean, there's Blade Runner, Minority Report, WALL-E. I think you could point to two or three others. Somehow we have this sense that being rendered into passengers is somehow an elemental form of giving up on um, uh, what agency, I guess, and and also a kind of collective agency or sovereignty. So it becomes political very quickly. The way it becomes political, and this is when I talked about populism uh, in the introduction, um, you know, we have come through the Brexit controversy in the past few years, um, and obviously that same year uh, Donald Trump was elected in the States. And both of those, to me, felt like sort of an instance of what you're talking about, which is that somehow the structures of the world, whether they were government structures or they were kind of corporate multinational structures had become so big that people didn't feel they had either individual agency or collective sovereignty anymore. And these were kind of cries of anguish against that. Yeah, so you could you could point to the yellow vests in France. So this begins as an automotive protest, right? It, it was sparked by a rise in the fuel tax and a slight reduction in the speed limits, which of course affects people in flyover country, as we call it, more than in the metropole. So, you know, Macron's base in Paris rides the metro and, of course, also takes environmental virtue as one of its titles to rule. Their interests were very much aligned with these kind of anti-car uh, measures more than, you know, people who live out in the periphery. And then in London, I actually have a chapter about this in Why We Drive, as you know, um, about the fight between the London taxi drivers and Uber, where it's a kind of colonization of London for hire cars by this foreign ride-hailing company that's relying on map software. And, you know, the, the gig economy drivers who aren't invested in the job the way these highly professional London taxi drivers are. So it's a case of some foreign firm practicing a kind of labor arbitrage to, um, you know, basically sidestep local control of, you know, what's really a guild, right? This is a, the taxi drivers are a guild. And according to the free market mindset, this is all to the good, right? Just guilds are bad. It means high prices. Um, and that's a mindset that only treats us as consumers and sort of, you know, the effect on sort of communities of work is completely absent from that picture. But I think that just the obviously kind of colonizing or imperialistic character of this takeover was enough that um, it was explicit enough that I think it contributed to that Brexit mood of like, wait a minute, let's, I mean, can we take back control or can't we? Do you worry about the, the, the digital aspect of all of this? Um, you know, that we are literally staring at our screens all day uh, instead of being out there playing or riding our motorcycles and 
you know, that there's, that there's, we're being brought into a, a kind of weird digital half-life by all of this convenience. Well, obviously, there's a the uh, there's this economy based on harvesting our attention and then packaging it and selling it, uh, which and it does tend to kind of nudge us ever further into a, uh, a kind of manufactured reality uh, world on screens. And I, I, that was the major theme of my second book, The World Beyond Your Head. Um, but when it comes to mobility, um, we're talking now about the logic of the internet, the economic logic of it kind of coming out of the screen and into the real world, which I find pretty disturbing. So let me tell you an anecdote. Um, so there was a Google car, you know, self-driving car, you know, a test test car that came to an intersection and stopped. And this was a four-way stop. And um, so it stopped and then waited for the other cars to stop before proceeding through the intersection. But of course, that's not what human beings do. And so the computer didn't know what to do. It kind of got paralyzed there. And the Google engineer, the, the guy in charge, said that what he had learned from this is that human beings need to be less idiotic. And of course, what he meant by that is that they need to behave more like robots. And that's an inference that comes very easily if you regard the mind as basically an inferior version of a computer. And completely invisible to him was the kind of social intelligence that actually is playing out at that intersection, you know, where people make eye contact, maybe one waves the other through, there's almost a kind of body language of driving. And it works for the most part. I mean, it's a little bit messy. It's not perfectly orderly, but uh, it's functional. Um, so, but that's invisible to you if you, if you think that reason is basically just rule following like a computer. Mm. And so, what that points to is the fact that humans and computers are not going to be able to share the road together gracefully. Humans are not going to become more like computers. So the alternative is that they need to get out of the way uh, so that the, you know, the, the machines can um, sort of operate smoothly. So that, that points to the kind of all colonizing character of it, where you know, driving your own car is likely to become illegal if we go down this road. Do you feel, talking like this, that there's any uh, chance that things will go in your direction? <laughs> I mean, it feels like all of the macro trends are going in the opposite direction. And I just wonder, how, how can you win this battle? Well, it remains interesting just how, how easily the kind of narrative of inevitability um, can um, kind of demoralize any kind of resistance to this sort of incursion. Um, and I think the assertion of it being inevitable is a is a key part of the kind of business strategy. It's a sort of get on board or you'll be irrelevant kind of. Act. Yeah. Yeah. What are you clinging to the past? Um, of course, often people are just clinging to the present as perfectly adequate. You know, like we don't need this. But you mentioned congestion. It's interesting. Um, in New York City, when the city was getting sort of Uberized, this was between 2013 and 17, um, 
the number of for hire vehicles increased by 59% and the number of unoccupied vehicles by 81%. So, you know, you you call your Uber and it comes within like three minutes. Um, and the only way that's possible is that the streets are flooded with empty cars. So the New York City transportation manager wrote this article where he's saying this is this is just massively increased congestion in New York City. And of course, the other part of it is that you're sapping political support for public transportation uh, because those people, you know, who who pay substantial taxes, the sort of you know managerial uh, bourgeoisie, are now taking the Ubers. They don't want to pay taxes for to keep up a crumbling subway system. Whether it's in politics, talking about you know, people's local agency, um, or whether it's in these kind of consumer choices where you've got to, you're trying to fight against these big, apparently inevitable trends. You've got to somehow win that argument. You've got to present something else that's more desirable to people or more than convenient. Yeah, well, I guess I would tend to fall back on something very... Uh, um, discreditable here, which would be simply uh, the adequacy of the status quo um, as a principle, uh, as against um, dreams of a new order that require massive, um, massive new concentrations of wealth. So again, to take the case of Uber, um, there was the inevitability uh, assertion, you know, the future has decided this is what we're doing and sort of the whole press the technology press and business press just got kind of snowed by this. But it's interesting uh, because some serious transportation economics people have started looking into the actual economics of Uber and realized, well, everyone knows they lose billions of dollars every year. They've, they've never made a penny. And what they discovered is that Uber has not discovered new efficiencies that formerly eluded the traffic industry. In fact, they're uh, in some less efficient. So it's interesting. You don't necessarily have to have a a picture of an ideal transportation system. You just have to have a little skepticism about the bullshit that gets peddled, and and then watch it fall of its own weight and uh, contradictions. Yeah, I just wonder where this all falls out in politics. And you know, the Brexit example also. You know, it feels like. This kind of rage that all of these things are talking about mm -hmm. is from they are, those voters are now voting on the right. Yeah, it's interesting. We <clears throat> we now associate populism with the right, and I suppose I mean it'd be interesting to trace historically how that came to be the case. And I think probably it has to do with sort of the growth of the administrative state being very much taught sort of bound up with programs of social transformation, right? That, that That is the kind of, that's the stock and trade of the left, wanting to transform society um, along, you know, projects of gender and race and sexuality and, and these things. So um, if the populist is one who's basically suspicious of sort of rule by experts as a kind of working definition, and the rule of experts has been coinciding very much with um, sort of transformative social projects, then it makes sense 
for populism to be a uh, you know sort of the foot draggers in the march of history would be their um, their characterization. Certainly here in, in the UK, there is a little bit of a fusion between kind of old left, yeah, the, the kind of small C conservative old left in a way, with um, the kind of non um, financed led right. And I think in America as well, there's the more religious conservatives are often you know, would, would understand what you're talking about more than the kind of Wall Street conservative. Sure. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the old left. I mean, some of my sort of closest intellectual companions have been of the old left and they are, are in fact old themselves, old guys um, who, you know, if your concern is for labor, for the dignity of labor, for its prerogatives, for, for protecting it as a um, against you know, predations, um, you will not find that uh, before the rise of, of the new socialism in U.S. politics. It was just absent from progressivism. It was all about um, social transformation. Now the picture is more complicated. And like you say, there are these kind of new uh, intellectual friendships developing between um, kind of an old left sensibility and those who might call themselves conservatives in the sense that they want to con preserve uh, a kind of social order in which um, labor had its place, uh, in which it was in the context of, you know, family life, such that one didn't have to have two incomes to, to survive, which made possible a kind of uh, moral ecology in the household that was good for children, you know, less divorce. The, I mean, all these things are obviously connected, and we're we're at this point trying to grope our way toward a, an understanding of them uh, that will kind of do do justice to uh, our condition. It's almost a holiness when you describe that those that feeling of feeling alive or or having a, a kind of good and and fully existent life, but you'd never talk in religious terms. You, know, you grew up in a hippie commune, as I understand it, or some parts of your childhood were in a hippie commune in California, and then you've gone all the way to the, the fellow of philosophy at the University of Virginia. You can kind of put into words things that are more commonly understood on the right in language that a secular left can understand. Well, Thank you for saying that. That that has been, uh, I think, part of, of what I've wanted to do. And I'm not myself of a religious sensibility, but I've been hugely informed by, um, you know, like the sort of Catholic social teaching and the whole anthropology that's on offer from sort of uh, Christian philosophy. I mean, I've only dipped into that a tiny bit, but every time I do, I'm like, wow, these people have understood something about the human condition and about human limits and the requirements of um, sort of a community that is in some, in some way kind of has a horizon to it, is bound, isn't just kind of like a, a uh, highway rest stop or a Taco Bell or just kind of you know, atomized individuals floating through, coming and coming and going. You've moved back from Virginia to California. You're talking to us from the Bay Area. You are 
you're now at the heart of the beast. <laughs> it's uh, producing all of these huge technologies that are keeping us suppressed. Um, what, does it feel like you're now among the people that you that you left all those years ago and you feel fully comfortable or do you feel like you now are a sort of alien visitor who needs to um, destroy the structures you see around you? <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. Um, I do feel a bit alien just because of the transformation of of this place. The whole political economy of the Bay Area is like it's like a city state. It has very little to do with the political economy of the US in general. I mean, it's anchored by what's probably two or three trillion dollar corporations because there there is such a thing now. Um, yeah, it's very weird. It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd place and it's infinitely fascinating for a, a sort of anthropological uh, looking around and trying to figure it out. You end the um, book with a question as to whether the, we need to change the human spirit to work better in a world of bureaucracy and, and machines. Uh, or whether we need to burn that house down. Um, what are you? What are you? What are you inviting us to do there? Well, that was sort of a the peroration of a of a rhetorical kind of crescendo. Um, yeah, so I'm sarcastically saying, you know, maybe we need to be just become more passive and dependent, sort of accept with equanimity. The fact that we need to step out of the way so the machines can operate optimally, you know, which isn't obviously is a picture of of human degradation. So uh, my answer is no. Um, what what does burning that house down look like? That I mean, resisting it somehow. I think it would mean um, not simply deferring to the assertion that the future has decided this, you know, the future with a capital F and it's all inevitable. And I, you know, I see encouraging signs. People are now have a far more jaundiced take on big tech as a steward of the future and the sort of guardian of our interests. Now there's a lot of, um, I think, well-placed um, suspicion about that. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in our politics over the over the coming years, because big tech also likes to ally itself with the, the progressive project. So there's a kind of symbiosis there, which, you know, makes um, some of the, our political apparatus, you know, wanting to be remain friendly ties with that whole world. So it's it's an interesting mix. Well, there is a lot to be getting on with there, uh, Matt. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and um, I hope you'll be coming to the UK when they lift these um, bans on travel. And we look I'd, forward to coming you. Yeah, I'd love to. And, um, and thanks for having me on the, uh, on the show. That was Matthew B. Crawford, uh, author of Why We Drive, um, which is coming out in the UK in coming weeks. Um, a lot of interesting and new thoughts there, um, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. This was Lockdown TV from Unheard, and we'll be back in a couple of days. Thank you.